You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church or service times or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. lovely to be here, isn't it, and to worship God. Isn't it lovely to be able to praise him, to be free to praise him this morning, to be free to proclaim his name and glorify him. So many of our brothers and sisters don't have that privilege to meet together, to worship him in this way. We're so thankful for that. And we just pray that as we share this word together, it will bless us, that will glorify God, and that his name will be uplifted this morning as we share together. Living life in colour. What's that got to do with God? <laughs> strange title, but then it's a strange lady. Anyway. <laughs> we uh, think of God. We... Uh, don't think about him being a colourful God, but you know, he's a super colourful God. Look at all the things he's created, we only have to look around us. Look at the colour we're seeing in spring in the daffodils. Mm. Look at the colour in the summer and the intricate detail in the butterfly. (coughs) Or in that iridescent green on the back of a bird's neck. How do you capture that? How do you create it? I try to paint colours. How do you capture that? How do you get that colour? Well, God's a master painter, and he's a very colourful God. And it's no less evident than the kind of lives he wants us to live. He wants us to live our lives in colour. Now, I was looking at some pictures of me, because I needed to for one reason or another, And the first pictures of me were all in monochrome. They were all in black and white. Now, I'm not that old. (laughs) (laughs) But I do remember black and white pictures, and some of you will remember black and white pictures. When we look at really old pictures, we've got black and white. They're a bit monochrome, and some of them are a bit grey and a bit drich-looking, aren't they? Just the two colours and shades of grey. Or you've got the sepia photos. They've all kind of shades of brown and cream. Kind of look a bit jaded and they're all a bit samey, aren't they? And then somewhere, I think it was uh, when I was very, very, very small in the 1960s. (laughs) See, I'm not that old. We got glorious Technicolor in our photos. But the only problem was, you had to take them all, then you had to send the film off, and you were waiting for them, you were so excited to get them back. Can anybody remember that? Got your prints back, you thought, I got a great one, it was all on the beach. You take them out and all the heads are missing. (laughs) (laughs) The worst bit was, you maybe out of 24 photos, you got maybe three. And you paid all that money for it. (laughs) And now, most of us, all we have is one of these. And you know what? We can make it 
black and white, we can make it monochrome, we can make it sepia toned, we can enhance it, great, <laughs> and we can do all sorts of things with it to make ourselves look better, way back in the day. <coughs> but how do you look at yourself in your life? If you're looking at it in shades of colour, how is your life? Is it a bit monochrome, a bit grey and dreek? Is it a bit sepia toned, a bit jaded and a bit semi? Or is your life lived in glorious technicolour? It's kind of a question I want to leave you with this morning to think about. How we look at our life, how we feel about our life, is very much affected by our world view. That's the way we look at the world round about us. Where we are brought up, how we are brought up, the society we live in, all contributes to give us a world view. Let's try this. Oh, not on my backwards look. Let's try going the other way. There we go. Our world view, a filing cabinet. <laughs> right, this is just a little illustration of what our world view in the West is like. Most of the time in our country, our world view is kind of like a filing cabinet, if you can imagine that. And the filing cabinet is me, myself, <coughs> or you, yourself. The filing cabinet is you. Okay? And all the other things in your life fit into the filing cabinet in a nice neat file, so you'll have work Religion, maybe. Culture, family, family you're not so keen on, <laughs> work colleagues, <laughs> and they all have their own little separate file in your filing cabinet that is you. And how you look on the world is all contained and all focused on yourself, on you, and everything else is put in little files inside that. And how you see each one of these situations is taken from you. That's your main reference point. How does this work colleague affect me? How does this member of family affect me? How does my relationship with that person reflect me? Sometimes we reinvent ourselves. We can be one person at work and another person at home. We can be one person with family and a completely different person in church. That's right, isn't it? We can reinvent. We can be a bit of a chameleon. But our main reference point is ourselves. And that's how the world that we live in mostly take the world view from. Everything in the world, how it affects them personally, and that's reflected in their view of everything. We're going to take a look now at a man in the Bible who had a very, eventually had a very colourful life. And because he was living in the first century, 
he had a very different world view. So I'm going to read his story. It's a very familiar story. And uh, then I'll show you how we're going to have a little look at that. Okay, it's in Acts. And the first bit is in Acts chapter 7. So I want to keep in your head what the Western worldview is like. It's all referenced around people and themselves, generally. Right, Acts 7. And it's right at the end, actually. And verse 54. Acts 7 is a very long chapter, so it's right at the, near the end. And in verse 54. And Stephen has just preached. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Then we're going to skip a little bit into the next chapter and we're going to go to chapter 9 verse 1 Meanwhile Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias 
come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Ananias, we read on, Ananias wasn't very keen to do that for obvious reasons. This man was taking all the Christians prisoner. But he did what God asked, went and Paul got his sight back and spent several days in Damascus. We read later down in the chapter. And right away, after he was baptised, just as soon as he came around from this blindness, and um, right away he started preaching and teaching and debating. How was he able to do that? He'd only just had an encounter with Jesus. Well, because Saul was living in a different century and a different time, we're going to take a little look at him just for a few minutes. What we do with this story is we tend to take our worldview and project it onto the story and make it fit. So, Saul meets Jesus. He takes out the Judaism file out of his filing cabinet, gets rid of it, gets another file called Christianity, swaps it in, all done, simple. And that's what some Christians do with their faith too. They take out what was there before, they get a bit of God, think Christianity, that's going to be the religion, and swap it into the fire. But that's nowhere near what happened with Paul. Paul, I'm calling him, same person. Although he doesn't change his name in Acts till chapter 13. And then it just starts Paul. It does say somewhere in chapter 9 or 10 that uh, also called Paul. I'm not quite sure what happens in between there. Anyway, no, that's not really what happened. Saul was from Tarsus, which is right down the corner of modern Turkey in the southeast corner. Now, we've just been to Jerusalem, those of you who have just been to Israel. You kind of get a little picture of what life might have been like. Tarsus was a really important city. It was strategically important. It was right on the east-west trade route. Alexander, the Romans, they'd all recognised how important Tarsus was. It was full of Greeks that had as much philosophy as Athens. There was about 100,000 people living there. It wasn't a small city. It was cosmopolitan because it was on the trade route. You had people from all different nationalities. There was all different languages spoken. It was a multilingual, multicultural city. And that's where Saul was brought up. It was the streets were narrow, they were crowded, there was tenements, there was lots of people, they were all there right round. The Jews that were in their city, there were probably been about several thousand, they tended to stay together because it was easier for getting meat that was kosher, things like that. For their, to follow their religion. That's where Paul was brought up. And he was brought up, as he tells us, and from other documentation we can find out, he was brought up in a very strict Jewish home. 
His father may or may not have been a Pharisee. Paul certainly became one. Um, but his home was very, very strict. He had, well, as we see in some of his letters, I think he swallowed the Torah and the whole of the Old Testament scriptures whole because he could just seem to reference them when he was writing from one bit here and as Isaiah says there, doesn't he? He had a really good knowledge. He obviously was a very intelligent child. He not only wrote read Hebrew, ancient Hebrew, he spoke Aramaic, he spoke Greek, he debated with the Grecian philosophers there. He was a very well-educated young man. But he probably also learned, which was, he learned tent making, which was probably the family business, and uh, was apprenticed and was a time-served tent maker. Tent makers didn't just make tents, they made leather work as well. And there was a lot of demand for tents, not just military ones, but you can imagine people coming and going. They needed awnings too for working in the sun. This was the young Saul. And he was a zealous for his religion. He was keen on his religion. He was so keen on his religion, he was sent to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel. He was one of the most renowned Pharisees of the time. So he was very bright, he was accepted as a student, zealous for his religion. If you can imagine his worldview, the cabinet wasn't himself, the cabinet was religion, Judaism, his Judy, Judaistic faith was the cabinet and it was the reference point that he went to for his life. If he needed to know something about his life he would reference the law and the Torah. What did it say? How was he to live his life? He lived his life according to the laws and the culture of his religion, his Judaism. It tied everything together Jews didn't have just a faith in the one God. They had a whole culture that was held together and tied together by the religion and the rules and the laws and the structure of that religion. So if you can imagine this young man who's totally zealous for his religion, whose whole worldview is tied up in it. That was his filing cabinet, that was his view. He was willing to do anything to protect his faith. That's where he was at. He was willing to do anything. He actually disagreed with Gamaliel, his teacher, because Gamaliel said about the Christians, let it be, if it's of God, it'll stand. If it's not, it'll fail. But Paul, Saul was, no, we have to do something about it. He's a man of action. He looked on the Christians that were rising up as a total threat to his whole life. They were as bad as the prophets of Baal in Elijah's time. And we know what happened to the prophets of Baal and 
a righteous time. And that was why, when he was standing at the stoning of Stephen, he approved. And that was why he was shouting out murderous threats. These people were going to destroy everything. And not only was he zealous, he was looking at a time when the temple had been rebuilt, but God was quiet. God hadn't spoken for a long time. And they were looking to the prophecies of Daniel who indicated it could be 490 years. It was. It had been. It must be near the end. It must be near the culmination. The Messiah must be coming now. If you looked at the prophecies, the time was right. The temple had been rebuilt, but the Shekinah had never returned. The Shekinah was what? The Shekinah was God's presence with his people. And when we read about the temple, Solomon's temple, after it had been built, God came down in a cloud, and his glory dwelt where? In the temple. And the temple was the contact point between man and God. And the only way that people could have a relationship with God was at the temple. It was the central point. It was the connection. It was where God was. It was God on earth. It was where man could connect with God. And only once a year through the high priest. But it, that was the connecting point. And the Shekinah was the sign of God's presence. And it was there in the temple. After the temple had been rebuilt when they came back from Babylon, there's no record of the Shekinah coming back. Interesting. And what these young, zealous Jews, like Saul, were believing and looking for was the Messiah. It must be near the time now. They were studying the prophecies. They were studying the scriptures. They were saying, it's going to be the time. The time is coming. And then Jesus comes. And then these people start saying, he's the Messiah. And they're going, no, no, can't be the Messiah. That's not how it's going to be. That's not our reading of the scriptures. These guys must be got rid of. They are poison to their faith. Paul wasn't, Saul wasn't a bad man. He was being zealous. You remember his whole life, his whole worldview, what didn't start from him, it started from his religion, from his Jewish faith. Everything that he was had come from his faith in the one God. He was also living at a time where uh, all the people round about him had uh, bowed to the Roman decision. You must worship Roma and you must worry, worship Kyrios Caesar, Lord Caesar. You must bow to him. 
and the Syrians and the other people in the land, they said, oh well, we've got six gods, we'll just add another one, that's fine. But the Jews had steadfastly refused to do that because they only worship the one God. And they had managed to get a deal with the Romans. They said, well, you know what, we won't pray to your God, but we'll pray to our one God and ask him to bless Rome. Will that be enough? And they had created to deal with them and they, that had been accepted. So this is the Saul who we meet here. This is the Saul who approved of the Estonian. This is the Saul who was on his way to Damascus when he had an encounter with the living Christ. And when Jesus spoke to him, and appeared to him on that road and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It must have tumbled in on him. Everything he'd worked for, everything he believed in, this was the Messiah. This Jesus was the Messiah. And God gave him three days to think about it. He was blinded. But we read that he, what was he doing? He was fasting, but he was also praying, and he also had a vision from God. During that time of Ananias coming to pray for him, and as soon as Ananias came and prayed for him, he was baptised. Says he was baptized before they even gave him food. They baptized him. Why? Because he had acknowledged now that this Jesus, whom he had been persecuting, was the Messiah. Now for Saul, that was the culmination of the story that he had been learning about. That was the culmination. That was everything that he had been living for. That was his whole life. So, what was he going to do with this? Because his Judaism wasn't going to be the covenant anymore. So what or who was going to replace it? And you know what? Jesus replaced it. When he had that encounter with Christ, Christ became the final covenant. So Christ was his reference point. And Paul had a re-look at all the scriptures that he had learned. Yeah. And put Christ into them. And when he did that, it was only a few days before he could go and speak to the Jews and say, this scripture here, look, Jesus fulfilled it. This one here, Jesus fulfilled it as well. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been looking for. Jesus took him and took his reference points and turned them round. 
He didn't just throw a file out. He threw out the whole filing cabinet and replaced it with Christ. Christ became the reference point for his entire life. He went on to become one of the first missionaries <coughs> that we read about. And we read about what he said, we read in his letters, and we read him saying, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. In other words, get rid of your filing cabinet that you use and replace it with Jesus. Let him become your reference point for your entire life. You know what God did for Saul? He filled his life with colour. You can't say he didn't live an exciting, colourful life. It might have been hard. He might have been persecuted. But you know what? You had God with him. He had God with him. And his life became very technical. Another slide for us here. No, that one's just quite here. <laughs> Saul's understanding enabled him to connect. There's one more thing that he had to come to terms with. He hadn't had the temple, he'd just had the Torah. The Torah was like a movable temple. If you couldn't go to the temple, you met with God by studying the Torah as much as you could, and you tried to go to the temple when you could. But, you know, the if Christ was God and he'd met God, his view of the temple had to change too. Because remember, the temple point, the temple had been, what did I say? The meeting point between God and man. And it was God's presence on earth. But when Jesus was crucified and that curtain was torn in two, We no longer needed the temple because Jesus was the meeting point on earth between man and God. And you know what the really good thing is? We don't need a priest. We don't need to go once a year. We can actually have that meeting point in us every single day. And we read that Paul later said, for your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul was meaning by that, and you can understand it if you think about this context, is that your body is the meeting point for God and man on earth. And you know what? You don't need the Shekinah glory in the temple because it's where? It's in you. If you have Christ and you've had that encounter with Jesus, and you have asked him to come into your life, you are a meeting point for God and man. You. And God is in your body. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that exciting? I just think that's exciting. And that we go around, and when we're going around, we're carrying the glory of the risen Christ, where? In us? Wow. 
Oh, and that's just enough to blow our socks off, isn't it? <coughs> still here. Yeah. Anyway, that's what happened with Sorry. And you know, that's kind of what happens with us as well. Because we're going along the end of the filing cabinet. And when we meet Jesus and we have an encounter with him, he says, get rid of that filing cabinet, that's me, and replace it with God. Yeah? So instead of looking, referencing everything to ourselves, we now reference everything to Christ. And we live our life through Christ. And our relationships with our family are through Christ. Our relationships at work are through Christ. The way we behave at work... Paul said, and I do all things for him, to the best of my ability. Yeah. How we live at work has as much to do with our relationship to Christ as how we behave in church on Sunday morning. Because God doesn't want to be a file in our cabinet. He wants to be our cabinet. So that everything, every part of our life is affected by him. Sometimes, you know, though, we've had this first encounter, we know Jesus, but you know what can happen sometimes? We can get a bit of this. Bloody vision. Now, I haven't had cataracts yet. I know quite a few people who have. And uh, the picture on the right-hand side it's what somebody with a cataract could see. And the picture on the left side is normal vision. You can see what's happened. It's just gone a little bit out of focus and a bit blurry and not quite clear. And you know what? When we're working with God, Sometimes we can forget that he's the cabinet and we can stick him back in the file, stick him back in the cabinet. And you know what happens then? Our vision of God becomes a bit blurry. And um, our life can become a bit more sepia-toned. Because if our vision of God becomes blurry, it takes the colour out of our life. It can even go to monochrome if we're not careful. It can become a bit jaded, a bit tired. Why? Because we're not keeping Jesus as the centre. We're not keeping Jesus as the cabinet. We're relegating him to become a file. We still want God in our life. But we don't want him to be the most important thing in our life. Yeah. And instead of God being the most important, it kind of creeps around a little bit and we become the most important. And God is just here somewhere, somebody who we talk to on Sunday and maybe once a day. God wants us to be the other way around. So that he is the most important thing. And you know, when we have... And that's the most important thing in our life. It's like we are totally saturated in him. I've got one last picture. If we're living life 
saturated in Christ. It's kind of like this sponge. Sponge is in the water, and the water is in the sponge. When we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. Yeah? So if you take the sponge out of that bucket of water and hold it up, it'll just all drip, won't it? Because there's so much water in it, it's oozing out. It can't do anything else. And if we've got Christ filling us, and we're saturated in him, we will lose Christ. That's kind of fun, isn't it? We will drip him all over the place. And other people will see him. And you know, when we need to, when we stop dripping and oozing them, we can go back down in the water and get a refill. But that's like what God wants us to do. He wants us to live in him, and he wants to live in us. So we're overflowing. So we're constantly being filled. And you know this? I've kind of seen this. My life has now been very monochrome most of the time since I came to God. But occasionally it gets a bit jaded because I take my eyes off him or off the ball. And your vision, you maybe don't see what God's doing quite so well. Or maybe you start looking at other people and you think, I'd kind of like to be like that. Or, or we get like the disciples and we start asking, right, God, you want me to do this, but what do you want him to do? He doesn't do anything. Jesus had to say, it doesn't matter about him, he's my problem. You do what I'm asking you to do. You know when you take our eyes off that? And it's very easy. It's very easy to do that. And maybe this morning we need to just refocus our eyes a little bit. Maybe we've never had that first encounter with Christ where we've had that real experience of him coming in and filling us. You know, if you've never had that first encounter with Christ, you need to just pray and ask him. And if you need to ask some of us, we'd very happily pray with you to help you receive Christ in that way. Because it's exciting. And if you're feeling a bit jaded, a bit sepia-toned, or you're feeling your life's a bit monochrome, a bit grey and dreary, maybe you just need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit so that you're feeling full again. Because with Christ we can tackle anything. And you might be going through hard times, but you know the blessing is, when you go through hard times with Christ, <coughs> he doesn't take them away, yeah. but he holds your hand. Yeah. And you have a deep peace that, that he's with you there in those difficulties. I was very saddened that one day, um, well, there was a song that's been around, it's quite a recent song by Lady Gaga. And I thought this just shows what everybody out there is feeling and what they're missing out on. The first couple of verses is, Tell me something, girl. Are you happy in this modern world? Or do you need more? Is there something else you're searching for? I'm falling in all the good times. I find myself longing for change. 
and in the bad times, I fear myself. Tell me something, boy. Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore? You know, when I heard that, I prayed because whoever wrote those words is searching. And they're searching for filling that void that only Jesus can fill. We're made with a God-shaped void. <coughs> and it doesn't matter how many riches or anything else, we need to have that experience that Saul had on that road and encounter Jesus for ourselves. And then our lives can be lived in colour through him. Amen.